that should be where the lion's share of your attention is paid because your electrical charge is directly related to your mitochondrial health. Your mitochondrial health is directly related to your ATP production. Your ATP production is directly related to your energy, right? Which is at the end of the day, what we're talking about. Do I have enough energy to actually feel the way that I want to all day long? Aloha and welcome to the Chris Lieto podcast. I'm Chris Lieto, former professional athlete and multiple Ironman champion. And my passion is to bring you inspiration, motivation, and knowledge from amazing experts in their fields, from top professional athletes in all variety of sports, where we can glean some information to improve our lives and live our lives to the fullest. And our guest today is Ben Greenfield, who is a New York Times bestselling author, a personal trainer, a coach, an athlete. He's done half Ironman, Ironman events. He's been very successful in the Spartan series. He was ranked the top 100 most influential people in the fitness world, and he is a complete wealth of knowledge. This episode is jam-packed. I met him 15 years ago, and we got to sit down then and talk everything about science, nutrition, training, and I knew that he was putting the time in and learning what he was applying in his athletic career at the time, but since then I followed his career, and he's had so much success following him on his podcast, his blog. He is an expert in longevity and health and looking at everything possible that you can do to improve your health, to improve your longevity and your life, not only with science, but also just with your attitude and being grateful and looking for ways to improve your performance if you're an elite athlete, but also just in everyday athlete or person that just wants to move and have more energy and live life to the fullest every single day. So we go through an immense amount of information in this podcast, so I encourage you to take notes. I encourage you to try to identify three things in this podcast that you can apply in the next 24 hours to see change in your performance or in your energy or just in your attitude. There's some great information here. We go through details from basic health to elite performance, to heat and cold therapy, sleep, diet, nutrition, attitude, your environment, stresses from technology today. So all these things we go in deep. So I'm excited for you guys to hear this episode, to get a lot out of it as I did. And I applied some of these great things right away for me and saw a change in my energy and just the things that I do on a daily basis. This show and this episode would not be possible without our presenting sponsor, Adaday. Adaday's mission is to help people improve their lives and live their lives to the fullest. And that really is how it got started and how the name, hence Add A Day, is to try to add a day to your life. What things can you do daily to improve your life and live your life to the fullest? And Adaday's product line really helps with your physical body to help with activating your muscles prior to working out, to help with recovery post-workout, to help and treat injuries that you may be having. And all these things are through precautionary devices like a massage gun, to rollers, to massage chair. All their equipment helps and allows you to recover faster. One of the amazing things also is the technology and the protocols that they have to help guide you through what are you supposed to do with these tools? How do you use them and what muscle groups do I even go to? Adaday has really put the time in to improve the product line, improve their information. So I encourage you to go check them out at adaday.com. That is A-D-D-A-D-A-Y.com and check out their equipment. And if you use coupon code CHRIS20, 
Again, that's Chris20. You get a 20% discount on any products that you purchase on their website. So I encourage you to go and check them out and support this episode and support this show and live your life to the fullest. This episode is also brought to you by Gatorade Endurance. Gatorade Endurance is different than your typical Gatorade that you'll may have tried in the past. Gatorade Endurance is specially formulated for endurance athletes or those that are doing prolonged exercise. You need to have uh, replacements of what your body is breaking down or what it's burning while you're out exercising. And the Gatorade Endurance formula is specifically designed to help in those areas, to maximize your performance, to maximize your body, to be able to get through those prolonged workouts or those races. And those are mainly in three areas, and that's your calories, of course, your electrolytes, and your carbs. And when you're going through prolonged exercise, you're gonna burn more electrolytes than you realize. And electrolytes are critical, and so they have an increased amount of sodium and potassium in this formula. So that's really important. The other part is the carbs. Your body needs carbs as energy, as fuel. The multi-carbohydrate blend that they have, that they've created, it's not just a single carb. All carbs are not exactly the same, so it's a multi-blend of that. It allows your body to absorb it quicker. And the quicker your body can absorb those carbs, the less likelihood that it's gonna give you GI issues or stomach cramps and things like that. The other thing is just calories. Your body needs calories and your muscles need calories. So you need to absorb those calories and get them in your muscles so you can keep going farther and longer. But one of the other things that you may wanna consider if you're planning on doing a race, most likely Gatorade Endurance is gonna be at your race. They're at over 300 races nationwide. And the number one rule is never do something new on race day that you haven't tried at home or in training. So you have to try what you're gonna do on race day. Go to Gatorade.com forward slash endurance. Use coupon code Chris20 and you get a 20% discount. So I encourage you to go to again, Gatorade.com forward slash endurance. Use coupon code CHRIS20 and get a discount and make sure that you try this prior to your event. On this episode with Ben, we got to talk a lot about his book, Boundless. We also talked about his company, uh, Kion, K-I-O-N, which by going to this website, you're going to find out a lot of great information. You're going to have access to his book there, Boundless. You can also see the amazing products and array of products that he has to help with performance, recovery, to give you the things that you need to perform at your best and to recover at your best. So I encourage you guys to check that out. He has given us the ability to give you a discount. So I want to pass it on to you guys. Again, go check it out, getkeon.com forward slash Chris Lieto and use coupon code Chris20. So thank you for supporting my sponsors and supporting the show. And make sure that if you enjoy this episode, please tag us, tag Ben Greenfield and tag myself, Chris Lieto and this uh, podcast. Share it uh, with your friends and share it on social media. Thank you so much and enjoy the show. Well, thank you very much again for, for uh, hanging out and coming out for a little bit and chatting with or, me. And Thank you for having me to your beautiful plantation. Yeah, <laughs> thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's been a while. I, re- I was just thinking back, what was like 15 years ago when you were doing triathlons, that long was it oh that long gosh, ago now i feel old or you t- know what no the last triathlon i did was, it was, was probably like 10 years i did 2016 hawaii ironman okay and then i've i actually have done a few races since then just for fun yeah like i tell people if i can when i'm 90 years old be able to do a sprint triathlon so just because i travel so much to amazing places with pools and i still like to ride my bike when i go to the grocery store and 
occasionally run, even though I don't like it very much at all anymore. I think that I can keep myself in good enough shape to just throw down a sprint every once in a while. Hundred percent. Yeah, hundred yeah, percent. That's easy with your background too and everything yeah. else you've been doing. Yeah. That's no problem. But the Ironman and half Ironman takes way too no, much energy. No desire, and you know, I, I don't want to offend people or make them uncomfortable, but I just I am so disillusioned with the idea that that's healthy for the body. Yeah, as it just just isn't. Well, that's that's one thing that I learned for sure. Like when I retired, so I raced professionally for 12 years Ironman uh when people ask me how many Ironmans I've done I have honestly I have no idea it's probably yeah. 25 30 somewhere yeah. in that range yeah uh I've won a bunch uh had great success I'm blessed um with what I've done and that time of my life was fun like I enjoyed yeah. it but when I stopped and I always knew that it wasn't great for you or whatever but when I stopped it took about two years to realize one how fit i was because i finally got like really out of shape it took two or three years to like feel mm -hmm. like yeah. the whole difference between those two and then um just how bad it was like how still to this day after nine years of being retired or eight years of being retired trying to get my body back to a place or in a place that i can function and feel right. feel good again right i mean with, with, with triathlon I think that that the shorter, faster races, you're not in a in you know like a hunched over, hip flexor shortened, glutes for the most part deactivated position on a bike for an ungodly amount of time. Yeah, and you know we know there's there's impacts with with you know mineral loss on bone density and you know, a lot of issues you see with with professional cyclists. And then there's of course the the turnover, the endocrine turnover, and the the exhaustion when it comes to vitamin C and minerals from the adrenal glands. I mean. You know, for me, I was always fighting an uphill battle from an endocrine and, and just like a gonadal yep. standpoint, you know, testosterone and, and yep. thyroid. Um, a lot of that stuff can be managed with recovery and optimized nutrition, but it's still an uphill battle. And then just the chronic repetitive motion, just always kind of like CrossFit, right? Like there are other sports that are similar. You yep. just always have a nagging ache and pain that you're pushing through and you always have an event on the horizon that does not allow you to necessarily just rest it, but instead train right. around it. Yeah, over and it. don't get me wrong. Like I think having a personal Mount Everest and having the, these amazing epic events that you can go and do, like they make life adventurous and fulfilling and, and fun and you, you can get pretty fit. But what I, what I try to warn people against is fooling themselves that that's synonymous with health or longevity. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, it's fun. It's a challenge, but it, if, if anything, it strips a little time off your joints, a little time off your hormones. And, you know, if, if there's two things I think people could track to optimize their longevity, it would be glycemic variability and inflammation. So the former being how often, to what extent your blood glucose fluctuates yeah. during any given day. And then the latter, uh, particularly chronic inflammation, right? Like is your, is your CRP, your cytokines, your fibrinogens, you know, all of these inflammatory markers, are they constantly elevated? And with, Mine were, with that's for hefty sure. <laughs> endurance sports or, or, or hefty, let's say, you know, crossfitting or, or bodybuilding, you know, which I did for a while and, and had the same issues or anything like that, you're basically looking at chronic inflammation paired with the necessity of feeding cycles that inevitably cause glycemic variability. No matter how, how much you're exercising, 
the carbohydrate throughput is so demanding yeah. that you cannot say, I'm going to eat whatever ketogenic diet or an ancestral diet and work my way around this because an unnatural ends requires an unnatural means. You yeah. have to dump a lot of yeah, it. Yeah, so that's what I said. So is there a way that you can go around it? Is there a way if you're in those endurance or in that repetitive type sport, can you go around that or are you just as far as susceptible? Like this is what I have to do. From a fueling standpoint? Yeah. From a fueling standpoint, there are some people, you know, like I was talking with uh, uh, Pete Jacobs the other day. And, yeah. you know, he's trying to to come back and do Kona, largely kind of like carnivore Carn- keto. Yeah, I heard about that. But when you look at everything from, from glycolytic surges that occur during the event, you know, people in the labs, they'll they'll test a cyclist at, at you know, uh, aerobic capacity. Right, so at, at aerobic threshold, yep. you know, which we might deem, you know, if you're going to use like a, a Coggin model or something like that, like a zone three, you know, race pace threshold for an Ironman. Something you can hold for a very you know, long like, period like of time. Like Jeff Volick's study, which yep. I which I did, the faster study where you're running on a treadmill at a, at a steady pace. And that was a, a three-hour treadmill test. And they displayed that athletes who were fat adapted, eating a ketogenic diet, their, their fat burning throughput was high enough that they were sparing glycogen and able to get through that aerobic event with no deficit in performance compared to the largely carbohydrate-fueled athletes. But then you take that and you apply it in the field when you know you're you're you might surge from you know a, an aerobic threshold of 270 watts up to over 450 multiple times yeah. during the event. And then you pair that with the glycogen exhaustion that occurs, say during an Ironman for those five hours. And then require another, not only multiple match burning marathon after that, where there are again surges where yeah. you're not going to be at your aerobic threshold the whole time. Um, at least it's it's very rare. You know, with a swim prior that depletes a little bit of glycogen, and it's very difficult to say that you are going to to have enough glycogen on board and enough creatine phosphate and ATP stool uh, um, pools on yeah. board to be able to do something like that on on a ketogenic diet and restrict glycemic variability. It's just, it's asking for things like thyroid disorders, endocrine disorders, even the proteoglycans that are used for joints, right? You're gonna, you're gonna strip those. And so I think that it is very difficult to do. And the the only way that that you might be able to get away with it would be to use like a train low race high type of approach, which there's a few studies that have shown that yeah. to be somewhat decent where you're, you're training in a somewhat carbohydrate deficient or a low carb state and then using essentially sugar as a sometimes drug. Right? Yeah. Like, so just do like, an intermittent piece of your dextrose, your fructose, your maltodextrin compounds during the actual event. But even then, you know, you, you haven't trained your gut to upregulate glucose transporters that would theoretically be necessary to use that type of fuel for a long time. And, um, it's you know it, it it's still I think an issue with your training to where I question if you can get enough training sessions in that simulate what you're going to be doing in the race right. on a completely low carb type of approach Same, yeah. and and be able to train effectively. So I would love to see someone display that it can be done. And and folks will say, well, what about a guy like Zach Bitter, right? Who's who's mm-hmm. doing these hundred mile races? But again, an, an ultra run like that. If you if you look at at the data in in a solo ultra runner who's technically not fighting that much with other athletes in terms of surges, having having to make a, a pass on the bike in X number of seconds, you know, and and in a, in a, a more competitive scenario in the marathon where you can see your opponent out there in front of you, 
it's pretty easy in an ultra run to maintain aerobic threshold well, the whole time. Yeah, and in a marathon, you're anaerobic because it's only two hours, or you right. or you tap into that. Or like you're, you're, you're tapping into it multiple times. Kind of that. Yeah. yeah, but as yeah. a as a an ultra run, that's multiple hours, four or five hours, six hours, depending on what yeah. you're doing. There's no way you're going to be tapping in that. So the most best approach is to be in that zone that you're going to be in that. Right, aerobic zone. Right. That and zone and three. other other people will say like, "Oh, look at the ancestral hunter gatherer tribes who are doing persistence hunting and you know tracking animals for hours and able to go at this aerobic pace with very little food, waking up in the morning." But you actually look at at what they're doing, and you know these folks, you know, like the uh, I think it's the um, who are the who's the persistence hunter tribe? I think it might be the Hazda, if I remember properly. That you know, if they pass like a like a, a hive of honey, they'll just go like crush like thousands of calories of fructose and then right. keep going right right so it if if ancient man had access to carbs to fuel an event like that to give them an edge they would take they it used it yeah yeah so so i think it just comes or down berries to berries yeah, or whatever yeah. right like whatever's yeah. in the environment wherever you're living and what exactly so you need you need unnatural means for an unnatural end because you're trying to do something that might not be from an ancestral standpoint something the human body is adapted physiologically to be able to handle. And I think if you do that, you're going to see, you know, coming back to the two things that I think are, are, are two of the biggest predictors of longevity, glycemic variability and inflammation, you need to accept the fact that those are going to be higher than would be ideal if you choose to do these, these, these type of events that just rip you apart. But I in no way think that, that there's anything wrong with doing you know, yeah. those events. So I want to make sure that we come um, come back to that because I want to I want to hit both of those things and come up with ways that we can adapt those in to our normal lives. Just a normal person that's not a super athlete or elite oh, athlete. I, I would love to. And someone that. who's yeah. just a normal guy that's yeah, trying that's to get off the ninety nine point nine percent of the world's population. Uh, right. And and um, I was just in India, for example. We were talking about this, and uh, what I what I didn't tell you was. That in India, the rates of obesity and diabetes are skyrocketing, but the carbohydrate consumption has not increased markedly, right? Like ultra-processed, sugary carbohydrates, right. what we might call acellular carbohydrates. Acellular carbohydrates being like a, a white bread or a processed rice or a processed starch in which the cell is no longer intact compared to quinoa, amaranth, millet, purple potato, sweet potato, etc. These more natural carbohydrates where you're getting a lot of of nutrient density, right. right? They're still eating legumes and chickpeas, and you know, and, and and you know, relatively ancestral indigenous Indian diet. But what's changed is the oils being used, right? Ghee, clarified butter, coconut oil, extra virgin olive oil have largely, as they have been in the U.S., been replaced by canola oil, right? And so, what happens is when the oils from those from those lipids that have been processed, oxidized, become rancid, heated, pressurized, et cetera, are taken into the body, they're used in that form to comprise the cell membrane. So if you have a cell membrane that's comprised of polyunsaturated fatty acids, all of the, all of the, the double bonds in that are a lot more, or the not the double bonds, but the, um, the single bonds, they are more prone to oxidation by oxygen. So essentially what happens is you create a state of insulin resistance on the cell surface receptor right. and you induce these things like prediabetes or diabetes, obesity, et cetera. And it's not related to the sugars, it's related to the vegetable oils. And so, I mean, nearly everybody that's living in you know society like, like ours and any society using processed packaged food, eating at a 
five-star Napa Valley restaurant where they're cutting the extra virgin olive oil half and half with canola yeah, oil. Right. I mean, the, the inflammation from vegetable oils is a huge issue for everybody. And then when you pair that with rampant availability of ultra-processed carbohydrates, then you get a one-two combo, especially. And we, we can get into how to control the glycemic variability, yeah. how to control the inflammation. But then you throw in sedentary lifestyle, post-industrial lifestyle, sitting in chairs where you're where your, your glucose is just allowed to rise over and over again. It's, yeah. it's a, it's a shit show. That's, it's so wild. Cause there's so much, there's so much information. There's so much stuff that we, as far as can do, how do you hone it down into what is practical and what are the first yeah. steps? So you, you just wrote a book boundless, which mm -hmm. is amazing, super thick, full of everything you can think of looking at that going, okay, do I dive in and try to change everything? Or what I really want to do is look at going, okay, I have friends or guys that I know that are hitting their 40s or, or 45 or more or whatever. Even now you see it more in like the 35s where they're getting the aches and the pains. They're getting the gained weight. They're getting the lethargic. They're hitting depression. They're getting really tired midday. You, you try to give them all of the information. It's overwhelming. So what are the, what are the few things or what would be the, the way that you would approach someone like that just to give them a yeah. The most okay. bang for the two, buck. Um, two separate tracks. Let's first address the elephant in the room that we were just discussing. Those two factors. Yeah. Glycemic variability and inflammation. Uh, the first, glycemic variability. Um, I wore a continuous blood glucose monitor for a year last year. It's called a, a Dexcom G6. If you don't have diagnosed diabetes or chronic disease related to high blood sugar, you have to pay out of pocket for that. You can't get a prescription for it. And I, I think it's prohibitively expensive for a lot of people. I mean, you're gonna pay anywhere from 1500 to $3,000, depending on how many transmitters you want. Oh. But, but it gives you continuous blood glucose data the entire 24 hours of the day. And I learned a lot from that that I can share. But if someone wanted to approximate that, Walgreens, CVS, uh, you know, the average drugstore has the little finger prick blood sugar test that you can use throughout the day to just see what's occurring to your blood sugar throughout the day. Is it is it dropping within two hours after a meal? When you wake up, is it below 90 or is it above 90? When you go to bed, is it below 90 or above 90? And so, so you can quantify and you can track it. And a few of the things in both my research and, and my, my personal experience with tracking blood glucose, with, with asking myself, okay, what can I do now that I'm quantifying this to control glycemic variability, um, number one thing, and, and we see this over and over again in, in exercise science studies, is low-level physical activity. I mean, yeah. as simple as how many steps are you taking during the day? How often are you standing at work? How often are you taking Pomodoro breaks to swing a kettlebell you might have in your cubicle or just go on a walk up the stairs or, you know, I have little rules, like I'll do 40 squats in the airplane uh, bathroom every time I, I use the toilet. You know, just little things that keep the body moving during the day when we are in a society in which we're not hunting for the most part, gathering, yeah. you know, engaged in this ancestral lifestyle that human beings were engaged in for thousands of years. Now we have to figure out how to hack our environment for this low-level physical activity through, during the day. A few other things that, that really helped out. Um, carbohydrate consumption. I saved almost all my carbs for the very end of the day. And when you do that, you're in a state of, of fatty acid burning during the day, 
the carbohydrates, especially if you're an athlete that you consume at the end of the day can be used to fuel the next day's workout. Yeah. Your glycogen and, stores. Right. Exactly. Yeah. The carbohydrates eaten at night assist with serotonin production. So you get a melatonin release that helps you to sleep. And considering that, you know, in a well structured workout program, I think the harder workout should be done in the afternoon to the early evening, finishing up about three hours prior to bedtime. So the core temperature isn't so high that it's going to impact sleep. Yep. There are ways around that, like taking a cold shower or jumping in a cold pool. But for the most part, finishing up within three hours prior to sleep, your body temperature, your post-workout protein synthesis, your testosterone, your grip strength, a lot of physiological factors occur in the late afternoon or early evening that dictate that that's the best time to do something like high intensity interval training or weight training or, or a hard workout that renders you insulin sensitive. And so again, if you're structuring your training and your nutrition together, hard workout later on in the day, followed by a carbohydrate rich dinner where all that carbohydrate is getting soaked up and uses liver glycogen and muscle glycogen allows you to kind of have your cake and eat it too, because you're, you're eating fats, moderate proteins, plants, vegetables, most of the day, keeping blood sugar low, you get a short transient rise in the evening, but be, if you've worked out prior, or even if you haven't, you decide I'm going to do a 20 minute, 30 minute postprandial, you know, dinner time walk. Yeah, you you can control it pretty well. So that that's another thing that made a big impact for me. In addition to low level physical activity, was was saving the carbohydrates for the end of the day. So uh, let me ask you this question: So if you're going to eat at the end of the day your carbs, and you ideally you want to work out at the end of your day. You still want to get the workout done three hours before bedtime, but don't you also want to eat and finish eating a certain amount of time before you go to bed as well, like the three-hour mark somewhere around so, there? So Dr. Sachin Panda, and that's a great question, he, he's a, he, he researches things like circadian rhythm and what kind of things would disrupt your circadian rhythm. And he argues that, a, that an early meal, you know, as does you know, ancient Ayurvedic practices, will assist with sleep. But most of those studies are not done in athletes or very active individuals. And any athlete can tell you from a purely anecdotal standpoint that if you go to bed hungry, like the sleep it's just goes, goes to pot. Yeah. It's worse. We yeah, see this totally. in fasting too. Fasting is one of the worst things for yeah. disrupting your sleep cycles. So it depends. If you're a sedentary researcher, yeah, have dinner at 5 p.m. And, and then, you know, don't eat again until you go to bed at 10 p.m. If you're an athlete, I think you 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 push it. Like like for me, sweet spot and, and most of the athletes I've worked with, it is the same thing. 7:30 to 8:30 ish, like kind of finishing your feeding cycle an hour and a half or so before bedtime is pretty good. But farther away from that, I, I think it impacts sleep deleteriously. So it depends on your level of yeah. physical activity. So what is considered an athlete? Like when you say athlete, is that someone who's training two to three hours a day? Very I, I, active, I would say someone who's training an hour to an hour and a half a day okay. would fall into that category. Which is a lot of people that want to be active. It's a lot of people. So, it's, yeah. it's almost every CrossFitter, exercise enthusiast, recreational yep. athlete out there. Yep. So the other thing to bear in mind when it comes to carbohydrates, I know we're rabbit holing in yeah. a lot of areas here, but I'll, I'll, I'll keep trying to bring it back, um, is that this whole eat carbohydrates once a day rule is something that you break if you are, say, a professional athlete or a very serious athlete uh, or exerciser who is doing a two-a-day, and that two-a-day is a hard two-a-day. Okay, I'm not talking about doing yoga in the morning and, and your hard workout in the evening or whatever, an easy swim or a sauna session or something like that, and the hard workout in the evening. And in a scenario like that, saving all your carbohydrates for the end of the day still applies. 
but let's say you're a two a day football player, you know, or you're a collegiate athlete with a, with a workout in the morning and a scrimmage in the afternoon. It turns out that if you have two workouts and they're within eight hours of each other, that if you don't eat after that first workout, a meal that contains carbohydrates, your glycogen levels are not topped off for that second workout. Right. So that would be a scenario in which you'd break that rule and you'd have a small carbohydrate feeding after the first workout of the day. We're talking like 100, 150 grams. And then later on in the day, you know, at dinner, you'd have another 100, 200 grams of carbohydrates, which is admittedly still kind of a low carbohydrate type of diet approach. Yeah. But in a lot of um, in, in a lot of athletes who might also be consuming trace amounts of carbohydrates for a long training session, like a long bike ride or something like that, that suffices. So a few other things with the, uh, with the glycemic variability that I found to be very helpful. Um, number one is there are a lot of bitters and herbs and spices that are known to stabilize blood glucose levels and to increase your insulin sensitivity. So this is often why if I go to a steakhouse, I'll get like, you know, gin with bitters and some lemon and, um, I'll even at home do like, you know, Ceylon cinnamon and cayenne pepper and ginger and cardamom and make myself like spicy, bitter forward cocktails mm -hmm. because it turns out that these spicy, bitter, herbaceous foods doesn't have to be a cocktail. It can just be, you know, shot apple cider vinegar, for example. It enhances what's called your first phase insulin response, which renders you able to, to, to shove the glucose into the muscle a little bit more readily. So without, without a spike, without right, a glucose. Exactly. Diet. So a couple examples of that in, in terms of quantity would be two teaspoons of Ceylon cinnamon that you could work into a smoothie. Um, you know, sometimes Ceylon cinnamon can be worked in, into like meat dishes, casseroles, things like that. Uh, apple cider vinegar, just that with some Pellegrino, shot apple cider vinegar in your Pellegrino. Lemon is good. Um, berberine is amazing as is bitter melon extract, which, which is something they'll, they'll chew on in Okinawa prior to a meal to, to stabilize their blood glucose there. Um, so, so bitters, herbs, and spices, and we see a lot of these, these so-called blue zones actually consuming a high amount of bitters and herbs and spices and wild plant extracts. Not only do those have a little bit of a plant defense mechanism built into them, that gives you a little bit of what's called xenohormesis. Like it, it is essentially, it's mildly toxic to the cells, but causes you to produce your own antioxidants. So it actually allows you to become stronger from a cellular defense standpoint, but these also enhance your insulin response. So you stabilize blood glucose more readily. So just working in a lot of the spices, the curries, the gingers, the berberine, you know, things like this throughout the day, that's a really good tactic for glycemic variability. So we've got that, we've got low level physical activity during the day, saving all your carbohydrates for the end of the day. And when you do have those carbohydrates, trying to choose cellular carbohydrate sources rather than processed carbohydrate sources. Whole foods, basically. Whole, whole food based carbohydrate sources, exactly. And then finally, the number one thing that dipped my blood glucose all the way up until dinner, lower than anything else. We're talking like 50s to 60s the entire day was about five to 10 minutes of cold in the morning cold water swim, cold soak, cold shower. Um, so just doing that once in the morning helps one, you that whole day. Once in the morning helps you the entire day, which means that furthermore, this, this is a good party trick. You know, if you had a total cheat meal or, you know, whatever, you've, you've had dinner late at night, not only do you need to cool your body's core temperature so you sleep better, but you also want to dip your blood glucose, quick cold show, cold, you know, cold shower back in the hotel room or the house. I mean, it can be amazing for lowering the blood glucose very quickly. So cold is very powerful. And how cold is a cold shower? Like I hear about that a lot. 55 degrees or less. 
which is not that cold. Yeah. I mean, Are 50, most 50 showers most most tap water going to be in the fifty five? You, you can get down that low. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you can you can get like you know there, there's a. Uh, you know, there's companies doing like done for you ice baths now. Like I, I just got one called a Morozco, Morozco Forge, and it's like a one of those ice tubs. You know that, that you just like dip into, but it's clean with UV and ozone, and just maintains like 32 degrees Fahrenheit, even in 110 degrees ambient just temperature nice. outside. So you just walk into that thing. You know, if you live in Hawaii or California, and, and you, you don't have an area where the where the cold pool is going to stay cold, and you don't want to just be dumping ice into it constantly. Yeah, you I know, went through a lot of ice when I was yeah, racing, yeah, getting in that ice exactly. bath all the time. And, and don't going get me back wrong. all the time. Because I'm sure people are going to ask this question. You know, savvy listener will be like, oh, well, doesn't, doesn't cold, like, blunt the hormetic response to exercise and shut down inflammation too much? It does, but the muscle core temperature has to drop low enough for that to be able to happen. And it turns out that takes about 10 plus minutes of cold water immersion. So if you overdo the cold, you actually can, you know, just like overdoing vitamin C or antioxidants or anything else that's going to shut down inflammation too much, you can blunt the hormetic response to exercise, but brief, sane forays of cold are amazing for the blood glucose response. So back when I was racing, I would get in an ice bucket or an ice bath for 18 minutes, 20 minutes. I always heard you don't mm -hmm. want to go more than 20. So it was always like yeah. I would go to the edge because I'm an achiever. I want to be the best right. I can be. So if they say 20, I'm going to be in there as close to 20 as I can be. Right. Now are they saying that it's better to go less? Okay, less so that? I actually I have, a, I have a big talk I'm giving to a group of, of uh, physicians um, next month about this very topic, uh, about, about you know proper use of heat, proper use of cold for physiological responses. And it turns out that what's called the, the mTOR response to a workout, and another term is called satellite cell proliferation. It's the proliferation of these cells that help to build muscle, as well as the increase in mitochondrial density. All of that kicks in for the first hour after workout and then begins to slowly decline. So what this means is that if you're going to do a longer ice bath like that, wait for at least an hour after the workout. And I think it's more prudent to wait a couple hours or do it more towards the end of the day. And you won't blunt that, that response that you want. You want to keep the inflammation. Yeah. And so same thing. Don't take vitamin C. Don't take vitamin E. Don't take antioxidants. Don't do an ice bath. Wait one to two hours before you start to pull out all the recovery stops because you want your body to have to deal with the inflammation naturally. Yeah, no, so, that makes sense. So, yeah. So, so those are some of the biggies for glycemic variability. And then the other part, uh, inflammation, chronic inflammation. And th there's a really good book about this called The Healing Code. And it does a great job really elegantly detailing how much chronic inflammation is at the root of so many chronic diseases, diabetes, obesity, cardiovascular disease, et cetera. Most of it stems to some form of inflammation, whether brought on by the foods that we are eating, by chronic low-level stress, by uh, by overtraining and excessive exercise, excessive exposure to, to radiation from you know, whatever, sunlight, airplanes, your cell phone, doesn't matter. But this, this chronic low-level inflammation is a huge issue. Now, as far as decreasing that, I, I, I kind of hinted at this earlier, but the number one biggest contributor to physiological inflammation is rancid vegetable oil consumption, like pressurized heated, oxidized canola oil, sunflower oil, safflower oil. If you want to limit inflammation, the best thing you can do is ruthlessly eliminate vegetable oils from your diet. So just olive and, oil should be the primary one then. Is um, that right? Or what other well, oils would you uh, recommend? Extra virgin olive oil. Yep. 
coconut oil, yep. macadamia nut oil, avocado oil, ghee, butter, and even lard are all pretty heat stable. You know, even extra virgin olive oil, there's like this myth going around, it's not heat stable, but like a good real extra virgin olive oil, and the way I tell if it's real is take a little shot of it, and it's called the cough test. If it's spicy Burns. enough to, to give you a little cough, a little burn, that's real extra virgin olive oil. And the polyphenols and the flavanols in that are high enough to where they're they're protecting it from excess oxidation due yep. to heat. So th those are your winners as far as oils. And you know you almost have to be that annoying person now who goes to a restaurant. And this this was me in India the past two weeks. Every single time I ordered, and and I would actually call the chef out because that's that's the way to do it if you really want to. If you want to make sure, properly. yeah, if you want to make sure it goes straight to the top. And I just said, can you cook this in ghee? And if they could cook, in, cook it in ghee, then I'd order it. And if it was already pre-cooked or pre-packaged or pre-made in vegetable oil, which is often the case in a restaurant, I would just order something else off the menu. Um, so asking for substitutes at restaurants and, of course, making sure in your own home you're careful. Uh, that's very prudent. And then, of course, like the whole packaged food industry, it, it's it's such a maze because you go to buy your, you know, you go to the, the healthy food section of like Hudson's Booksellers at the airport when you're traveling and Everything from the sugar snap peas to the beets to the carrots to the pretzels, they all, if you look at them, not only is sugar a primary ingredient, which affects that whole glycemic variability scenario, but so is canola oil typically or sunflower oil or safflower oil or even the you know, the Whole Foods hot salad bar using expeller pressed canola oil. These, these are all examples of areas where you want to be really, really careful if you want to avoid inflammation. Um the, the, the thing is that it can be difficult in this day and age, I realize, and I'm sure a lot of people are, are realizing this as they're listening. It's like, what do you do? I mean, like, can you really, truly eliminate all of this? I think it's hard not to get trace exposures here and there to vegetable oils, but there's a really good researcher named Dr. James Nicolantonio, and uh, he has actually looked into specific compounds that help to protect the cell membrane from the oxidation from vegetable oils. And it turns out there are two that are very potent that they, these are kind of like in my, my travel kit. If I'm just like going to a steakhouse, I know I'm in a business dinner. I know it's not one of those grass fed, grass finished, super healthy steakhouses, but you know, I gotta be there, right? Like yeah. the, 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 the meeting in, in the business is, is more important than me being myopically or thoracically <laughs> focused on my extra virgin olive oil. So the two uh, compounds are spirulina and glycine. Both spirulina and glycine are protective for your cell membranes against vegetable oil. So I'm not saying like, you know, drink oodles of canola oil and chase it with spirulina. Right. But you can have those as backups to kind of sop up some of the damage. Another really, really good one that has, it actually has a lot of really good properties for everything from healing up sunburns to, um, it, it's actually got some DNA protective mechanisms as well. And it's something I actually used to use when I'd race Ironman Hawaii the sun damage afterwards is astaxanthin. I knew yeah. you were going to say like that. Good 30, I 40, that 30, 40, I believe it's milligram. I don't think astaxanthin it's milligrams. is milligrams. milligrams. Of astaxanthin can be very protective for that as well. So that, yeah, that's I would get up one. to, I think I got up to 20 milligrams a day yeah. sometimes of yeah. that stuff. That stuff was amazing just yep. all around. Yeah. Really protective. Yeah. And, um, you know, in, 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 in my well. book, I've got like a dozen other ways to control inflammation from, you know, breath work techniques to again, like, Coal can be helpful to, you know, different nutrients, compounds, you know, dietary extracts. But the, the biggest thing really is, you know, you, you were asking me about like, what, what are the basics that people can do in addition to just like 
doing some cold things, bitters, herbs, spices, low-level physical activity, saving your carbs for the end of the day and making sure they're whole foods, carbohydrates, ruthlessly eliminate vegetable oil. And that will help with the glycemic variability and the inflammation component. So that's that's one track as far as where my mind goes when you ask that question. And then the other track is... Well, let me you know, ask you a few more questions yeah, on sure. that track first. Yeah. So if we're looking on that track of going, okay, everyday person, so we know... All right, if we wake up, ideally get a cold bath or a cold shower mm-hmm. just for a brief time. Right, preferably fasted, by the way. Fasted. Because if you do it fasted, you get the additional fat loss benefits because you mobilize fatty acids from adipose tissue and convert white fat into metabolically active brown fat if you do cold exposure in a fasted state. Okay. And then ideally, no as far as packaged food. Ideally, like you want right. to stay away from anything right. that's processed for, or packaged. For the most part. I mean, don't get me wrong. There's some wonderful packaged food companies out there doing really natural you know, packaged foods without vegetable oils in them. Yeah. Um, you just have to look at the label, though. Yeah. And, and it, it's, it's that simple. Yeah. So. All right. And then exercise, obviously moving every day. And if you don't have time or if you're not in the m- momentum to be like, okay, I'm going to train an hour a day of doing something that I'm going to set a goal of doing a half marathon or a 5K or a 10K, it's literally just get up and walk. Yeah. Get up and do squats in between your workstations or working or something like just making sure that you're doing some sort of exercise. Uh, Four things. All my clients, these are like non-negotiables for my clients. A, they have a 10,000 step count every day. So they'll use like an an aura ring or wristband or whatever. It's 10,000 steps. So if you push yourself away from your, whatever, again, your business steakhouse dinner and you're at 9,000 steps, you know, go for a 15 minute walk and call your family. Just get that 10,000 steps in every day. That's good. Um, number two, always have at your disposal throughout the day three things. Pull-up bar in the door of the office or the home or wherever to where you can either hang from it or do one, three, five pull-ups, whatever you can manage. My rule is five, so I have a pull-up bar. So I walk on that thing like more than 10 times a day, right? So I'm, I'm racking up 50 to 100 pull-ups a day. B, a kettlebell. Kettlebell swings are amazing for lengthening the hip flexors, turn them back on the butt after you've been sitting for a long period of time. And the rule is just at some point during the day, do 10 kettlebell swings when you walk over that kettlebell. Yep. And most folks are getting 30 to 50 kettlebell swings in during the day. It doesn't have to be heavy. I mean, yep. it can be, you know, for the average guy, 20 kg kettlebell is, is fine. And then finally, a hex bar. So a hex bar is, is uh, it's a bar that allows you to deadlift without compromising your low back and without having an, an, an extreme working knowledge of, of advanced deadlift biomechanics. It kind of forces you into pretty decent form. And your glute activation and your grip strength are directly correlated to longevity and also really, really important for just general physical function. So I have them keep that hex bar either in the garage or in the office or in a bedroom in the home, and it's already loaded up with weight. So the rule is five times a day, you got to walk in there and lift the hex bar five to 10 times, right? So you're getting kettlebell swings, pull-ups, 10,000 steps, and hex bar deadlifts in throughout the day. So the idea is that by the time the end of the day has rolled around, unless you're a professional athlete or you're training for aesthetics or something like that, the trip to the health club or the gym or the formal workout is an option, not a necessity. Right. And I think if you stack your day so that you tell yourself, okay, by the end of this day, whether or not I go to the gym, I have achieved low-level physical activity because I've hacked my environment. I have all these things in my environment to allow me to stay active during the day. You can do it. And, and those are the things I found to be really helpful. The 10,000-step count, kettlebell, 
pull-up bar, hex bar. And that's really achievable when you look at it because most people will be like, oh, I don't have time to spend an hour to go to the gym. I got to go drive and do this. And then right. I work all day and I got to pick up the kids. And I understand we're in an environment of our life that we're super busy. Mm-hmm. But by looking at it that way, it's literally two minutes every yeah. half hour yeah. or whatever. It doesn't yep. take that long, and but you're just moving throughout your day. Yeah. Just and, getting and technically, it does simulate a more ancestral approach to movement too, because unless you, from an ancestral standpoint, were like an athlete or a warrior or a gladiator or someone whose job was to compete or die for a living, it was pretty rare that you'd just like go to the pain cave for an hour or two yeah. you know, for your movement. It was instead just woven throughout the day. Right. right? Even my wife, you know, she's she's a domestic engineer and takes care of the, the house. And we have goats and chickens and a vegetable garden and rock walls and wheelbarrows and alfalfa bales. And she just like she plays tennis and then she's like out in the yard all day pushing wheelbarrows around and hauling rocks and and yeah, in between she might be, you know, sitting on the porch reading or having a glass of wine or painting with the kids or whatever. But she's just got all these little movements sprinkled throughout the day and she rarely hits the gym. And you know, she uh like me, uh, does the blood and biomarker testing, kind of keeps her finger on the pulse of inflammation and variables for longevity. And she's in excellent health, but she's not formally going to the gym maybe like twice a month. She'll do an actual workout. So you would also say, well, I wanted to go back to a glycogen meter, you know, going mm-hmm. and getting something. That would be a yeah. top on the list as well, right? So you'd say that that would be yeah. something, like if they're going to go out and buy something, go ahead and do that. Not just change your diet, but do that as well so then you can confirm that your diet is adjusted to where your insulin spikes are not happening. If you can get your doctor to prescribe you a Dexcom G6, it's a very accurate blood glucose monitor. Uh, it'll, it'll send straight to your phone 24 seven. Although, you know, and this is always a concern of mine. I never like to wear things that are just like constantly emitting a Bluetooth signal or a Wi-Fi signal. So this one, you know, when you turn it on, it'll pair to your phone and then you don't have to have it just transmitting all the time on your body. Uh, as an alternative to that, just like a, an AccuCheck blood glucose stick that you can get from your local drugstore is a more budget-friendly alternative. And I'm keeping my eyes on a few companies right now that are trying to develop methods of assessing via almost like, a, I don't know if they're using infrared light or what, but through the skin, detecting glucose molecules via like a watch that you'd wear wow. as the blood travels underneath that watch through the skin. And so uh, I think it was one company called Level I was looking at the other day that looks like they're getting pretty close, wow. but none of them are, are quite accurate at this point. I think within a year though, self-quantification of blood glucose will get pretty affordable and, and easy for most people, as, you know, as easy as wearing a wristwatch. So last, last thing within that is what would be your suggested daily diet because even me who's experienced as an athlete and know what food is i eat and all that kind of stuff when i hear okay i don't want to eat something that's processed i want to make sure i'm eating fats and save my carbs to the evening and i want to do this this and this what would be an example of if I get up in the morning yeah. what am i going to be eating yeah. three or four times a day what am i going to snack on you know it's the dirty secret in the nutrition industry that the best way to make a quick buck is to write a diet book and then to advertise that book as being like god's truth every human being should be on this diet whatever the paleo diet the the keto diet i have to be careful how i phrase it because if i start to get really specific with diets i'm I'm shoving people under the bus who i gotta (laughs) who i gotta have dinner with or see at conferences and stuff like but the the ultimate idea is, is i've never written a diet book because i disagree with that notion even in boundless there are 14 diets with instructions on exactly how to 
based on your genetic testing, your ancestral history, your blood, your biomarkers, your stool markers, your, your activity levels, et cetera, how to decide which one of those dietary buckets that you fall into. But the fact is, there's a book goes way back to the 60s by a guy named Roger Williams called Biochemical Individuality. And in that book, he's, he shows like 12 different sizes of the stomach and different shapes of the liver, the pancreas, uh, people with different rates of vitamin D excretion or vitamin D storage, meaning that some people who supplement with vitamin D could get toxicity really easy and others have to supplement with vitamin D. Same thing with like uric acid and oxalates from almonds and spinach. Some people get rid of those really fast. Some people store them and get joint pain and gout. And, and so there, there's all this biochemical individuality that's built into people. And then we have, of course, wide variations in exercise activity, which is going to dictate, you know, whether uh, you're eating a slightly higher amount of carbohydrates or a low amount of carbohydrates, like we were talking about earlier. Uh, and then there, there are just all these genetic polymorphisms that affect the diet that might be appropriate for you. So, for example, yeah. uh, ketogenic diet, very popular, but if your neighbor lost 20 pounds or did fantastic on a ketogenic diet, but you have, let's say, poor gallbladder and liver function, so you're unable to digest fats that efficiently, and uh, you, you get fatty stool and, and digestive upset or constipation in response to that diet, it might not be the best one for you because your organs aren't equipped to be able to handle that amount of fat. Or perhaps you have uh, what's called an FTO gene polymorphism, which would dictate uh, an inflammatory or obesogenic response to high amounts of saturated fats, which means coconut oil, butter in your coffee, big fatty cuts of meat, etc., could actually screw you from an inflammatory or a weight gain standpoint. Um, we also know some people have familial hypercholesteremia, which means that, you know, in response to a high amount of saturated fat, their cholesterol levels aren't going, you know, like 200, 250, which I think is fine. I think keeping your cholesterol above 200 is actually a longevity play, fantastic for cell membranes, good for cognition. And in the absence of inflammation and glycemic variability, it's very difficult for that cholesterol to become atherosclerotic. Yet some people actually have a genetic condition that's causing their levels of cholesterol to go like 400, 500, you know, very high levels in response to saturated fat intake. All of those examples would be people who would not do well on a ketogenic diet. Uh, we, we could turn to like a plant-based diet. You know, if you're, let's say, um, an undermethylator, meaning that, that you have very poor ability to be able to use methyl groups to do things like uh, transcribe DNA or have proper cellular metabolic function, you need a lot of methyl groups in your diet. And it's tough to get enough methionine for those methyl groups if you aren't eating any meat. Yeah. Whereas someone who's an overmethylator could probably do decently on a plant-based diet, assuming they you know, supplement to fill in some of the gaps like vitamin B and creatine and carnosine and taurine. Some of these things are missing from meat, but we can supplement with. You know, th those people would probably do okay on a plant-based diet if they did it in a, in a smart way. Um, other people have compromised guts leaky gut, autoimmune issues, et cetera, that need to be fixed. In which case those people might do very well on a highly restrictive diet, like a carnivore diet, for example, not for life, but for say, you know, 12 to 20 weeks, you pull out a diet that's going to heal your body. And then you eventually progress to a diet that's a little bit more inclusive of a wide variety of foods, right? So the diet is going to be highly, highly variable based on individuality. And we live in an era where the self-quantification to determine that would have cost like $10,000 of the 
Princeton Longevity Institute a decade ago, and we can now, you know, via companies like Wellness FX or Genova Diagnostics or Inside Tracker or Direct Labs, for not that much money, get a, a stool test, a genetic test, a blood test, and a urine test, and be able to see, okay, here's how my ancestors ate, here's some things I'm missing, mm. here, are, here are some factors that I don't have that would allow me to digest fat or not digest fat, here's some autoimmune issues that might dictate I need to do you know, a short stint of a very clean diet for a while. But I think you have to quantify. You cannot say that a certain dietary approach is perfect for everybody. That all being said, there is a lot of evidence that the, a large portion of the human population does really well in some semblance of a Mediterranean diet. Yeah. And I, I think that might be because of human origin, like like where humans originated as a species, somewhere in the in the Mediterranean. I mean, you know, you know like a, even from a from a Christian standpoint, you know, like the Garden of Eden was in the Mediterranean, and maybe that's why yeah. so many people are so genetically adapted to extra virgin olive oil and fish and herbs and plants and spices and some greens and not a ton of saturated fats, but small amounts of fermented dairy or goat cheese, et cetera. So I think a well-structured Mediterranean diet yeah. that kind of eliminates a lot of the wide variations in carbohydrates. That's It's a decent place to start for a lot of people. If you consider the fact that the Mediterranean diet also has some highly religious influences that we don't consider a lot of times in a westernized context, meaning, um, certain days of the week or times of the year where you restrict proteins or fast mm. certain days where you aren't having oodles of extra virgin olive oil, um, meals eaten in a very highly social context, right? Like relationships, family dinners, eating in a low stress format. So it's not just about your goat cheese and your extra virgin olive oil and your fish. It's about working in, you know, fasting, some elements of protein restriction, eating with people, eating in a parasympathetic state. So, even that diet you have to consider in terms of its 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 historical context. All right, so then we're going on the track of I think the next place we're okay, going to go so is like yeah, the elite the, athlete or the, the, the other super active. The other foundational principles. Okay, so so you're you're not necessarily an elite athlete. You just want to live a long time. You want to feel good. You want good good health span, good lifespan. Okay, so now you've got your head wrapped around limiting glycemic variability. Yep. limiting inflammation, and also realizing that you must customize your diet to you. And no matter what diet you choose, work in fasting, eating in a parasympathetic state, um, you know, just appreciating your food, a gratitude practice, you know, all these things that, that we know no matter the diet are healthy ways to eat. Then you get to the, the next step, like all these things, all these biohacks and sticking laser lights up your nose and you know, coffee enemas and supplements and peptides. I mean, it's, it's dizzying. I mean, and, and admittedly, I'm partially responsible for that because I wrote the book that we were talking about, you know, I have all these strategies for people. But ultimately, at the end of the day, if you have a smart dietary practice, as we've discussed, and a smart physical activity practice, as we've just discussed, the very best thing you can do is to understand that your body is a battery the cell operates on an electrochemical gradient, meaning you should ideally have a negative charge inside the cell, anywhere from negative 40 to negative 80 millivolts, and a relatively positive charge on the outside of the cell. We know that that uh, fascia, as it's compressed and decompressed, carries what's called a piezoelectric charge throughout the body, which is why movement is not just good for hydrating tissue and for staying mobile and for lowering blood glucose, but also for allowing our body to, to remain in this, this charged form. 
there are certain things that you can do to either induce a positive charge inside the cell, which would be deleterious, or a negative charge inside the cell. That should be where the lion's share of your attention is paid because your electrical charge is directly related to your mitochondrial health. Your mitochondrial health is directly related to your ATP production. Your ATP production is directly related to your energy, right? Which is at the end of the day, what we're talking about. Do I have enough energy to actually feel the way that I want to all day long? The title of my book, Boundless. The whole yeah. reason I wrote it was I want people to have boundless energy at their beck and call when they want it at any point during the day. And the, the main things that you can do to keep that charge, uh, I would say six things to focus on, six things to focus on. So we've already focused on diet and physical activity. Okay, so you've got those set up. The other six things. Um, we know that photons of light from the sun can actually directly induce the production of electrons within the body. Uh, specifically, it can, it can do that to an even greater extent if you're well hydrated, you have a lot of minerals, and you're eating some foods that can particularly enhance this effect. There's a really good German book uh, called Human Photosynthesis that I've finished recently. And it goes into how humans, to a certain extent, can photosynthesize, very similar to plants. We can actually kick off free electrons that keep those cells charged in response to photons of sunlight. Sunlight interacts with specific components to kick off electrons. Melanin is the one that's built into all of us. When sunlight interacts with melanin, a really large molecule, it's, it's, it's thousands and thousands of Daltons in size, it will kick off free electrons and help to keep your body charged. So getting out into the sunlight on a frequent, regular basis is amazing for maintaining energy. And that's also why this concept of photobiomodulation has become so popular in the whole biohacking and health world. The use of like near infrared and red light panels yep. or red lights, like you were showing me, you had one in your office. You know, there are the infrared saunas, uh, the juve light, the, the violite for the head. All of these are basically ways that you can bring sunlight into a post-industrial format, like a dark office or a home or you know a dark, dreary day in Seattle and still be able to get the effects of sunlight. But nothing really beats getting out in the full spectrum of sunlight. Right. There are also a couple other things that you can do to enhance the effects of sunlight. For example, chaga is very rich in melanin. Anything that's kind of black like that yeah. is high in melanin. So you can do things like you know, put chaga into your tea or your coffee in the morning, especially if you're getting out into the sunlight. Amazing for kicking off even more electrons. Another couple are chlorella. So like, like this dark green compound that's rich in chlorophyll also will kick off free electrons if you combine that with sunlight exposure. Huh. And then another one that's a little bit, it's a little more fringe. It's, it's technically treated as like a, a nootropic or, or a smart drug. Uh, originally, it, it was uh, only known as a fish tank cleaner. But it, but it actually, uh, I, I learned this from a doctor who's in with his patients. And then I found out there's like companies actually putting it in their, in their supplements as like a way to kind of turn on the brain and increase mitochondrial activity. And it's methylene blue. So you can get pharmaceutical grade methylene blue. <laughs> Put like a drop or two at the back of your tongue, so dye your whole mouth blue. Really? If you, if you uh, take too much of it, and you go out in the sunlight, same thing. It produces free electrons. Now you don't have to take chaga or uh, chlorella or methylene blue to get benefits from sunlight because you already have melanin built into your tissue. But number you can one, increase it if you want. 
Yeah, you can increase it if you yeah. want, but at least just yep. get out, get in the yep. sunlight. If you can't get in yep. the sunlight, red light. Uh huh. Can't get in sunlight, you know, at your office or whatever, buy one of those fancy light panels. All I know is if, if I'm at my desk and if I have my red light on and I work, I feel like I'm way more productive and way more. Alive. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And now, I, you don't want to overdo it. I, I should throw that caveat in there. It appears that depending on the power of the device, exceeding anywhere from 20 to 60 minutes actually produces such a such a charge in electricity that you get free radical production okay. right so just as you can overdo anything right yep. exercise sunlight the cold whatever you don't want to overdo red light exposure you also don't want to overdo sunlight radiation it's about yep. brief intermittent exposures to sunlight yeah number two is we know that every time lightning strikes any part of the planet it actually induces negative ions into the surface of the earth and when you go outside barefoot or you go climb trees or rocks, or you go camping outside and sleep on the ground, you're actually soaking up all those negative ions, which directly work to induce a negative charge inside the cell, which is all the more important if you're surrounded by Bluetooth, Wi-Fi, what we would call non-native electricity, smart home appliances, et cetera. All those are producing huge surges of positive ions. And one of the best ways to reset that, this is why, why going outside barefoot works so well mm -hmm. when you're jet lagged or when you've been flying an airplane at 40,000 feet above the planet, being bombarded by Wi-Fi signals inside a metal tube, get outside barefoot. It's amazing for restoring the body's electrical charge and very similar to sunlight. If you can't do that, there are now companies that are making ways you can biohack that, like grounding mats, yep. earthing mats, um, Pulsed electromagnetic field therapy, which is kind of popular in physical therapists. And, uh, you know, a lot of doctors are now using that for anti-inflammation and for healing up injuries. It also does the same thing as grounding and earthing. So getting outside barefoot, along with getting sunlight, right? These are all very ancestral practices. Yeah. Sure, you can use modern technology for it, but, you know, I even have a, a pair of sandals called Earth Runners, and they have little carbon plugs built into the bottom of them. So if I'm in a city, uh, you know, New York City, I'll be walking on, you know, uh, you know, whatever syringes or glass shards or anything else that might be out <laughs> there on the sidewalk, yeah. my feet are protected, but I'm still being grounded. And for a few bucks on Amazon, you can buy, I think they're called earthy straps. You just wrap them around any set of shoes on a run. You can be grounded the whole time you're on a run. Dude, that stuff's amazing. Because when I was, when I would commute and travel and fly like East Coast for a race, or I would, first thing I would do is I would get out and I'd go to the beach or I'd go on the sand or I'd go on the grass and I'd stand there. I would yeah. go for a swim in the ocean. The ocean's the same way because the earth is the same yep. way as the ocean. So you can collect all, all yep. of that there. And then this was 15 years ago, got the earthling blanket yep. and would do the same as before that now as far as technology, you can actually plug it in to the ground of your outlet. But before we would have to run it outside a window and we'd have a big stake and we would stake it in the ground yeah. and get it in your That's actually your exactly what I have in my, op my home office. I'm, I have this grounding mat I got from a company called Ultimate Longevity, and I could plug it into the grounding outlet of my home, but I can get even more negative ions. Yeah, I got this little out. string stake out in my yard, and the, the guy who mows the lawn like takes it out, and he always forgets to plug it back in, so I got to go stick that stake back into the ground after the lawn gets mowed. But yeah, it's, it's amazing. I would be remiss not to mention that there's some evidence that in highly urban environments, where there's a lot of power traveling from the substations through the ground uh, around the homes that if you're using some of that grounding and earthing technology in that environment, it may actually expose you to more of like the non-native EMF. So I have yet to be convinced that for somebody living in a big city, like sleeping on a grounding mat or an earthing mat or using one at their office would be a good idea. 
but you can still go outside barefoot or you know, yeah. and, and and not get such a concentrated surge of power you know, yeah. when, when you're using those devices. So grounding and earthing yep. and sunlight, those sunlight. would be two. And there's also a really good book about grounding and earthing. In addition to those two books I mentioned for sunlight called, uh, I think it's just called Earthing. Uh, okay, so the, the other four, in addition to sunlight and grounding and earthing, and these I, I can probably get through a little bit more quickly. Uh, we know that heat is amazing for the body. Like I mentioned, I'm talking to a bunch of docs next month about all the different benefits of heat from reduced risk of Alzheimer's and dementia to cytotoxicity to cancer cells to uh, induction of heat shock protein, which is highly protective for cells. Uh, but uh, And then, of course, the, the red blood cell production, which is amazing for athletes. Like Multiple studies show that hitting the sauna for 30 minutes post-workout gives you a red blood cell production that's similar to what you get from you know, injecting EPO. Wow. So, so sauna is really amazing, you know, just for heat acclimation, but for building red blood cells. And in Finland, we know from the Finnish men's longevity study, guys in Finland who sauna are living like four to six years longer on average with a marked decrease in risk for things like Alzheimer's and dementia. And this is just from a regular sauna practice, which of course, you know, I, I worked out this morning at my buddy's house, you know, here in Kona and I, I was, I probably lost more water than I would in a sauna. So it doesn't have to be a sauna, but it's basically okay. this idea of getting hot. That moves electrons throughout the body very efficiently. So not only are you getting all the other benefits, but you're also getting that recharge of the body's electrical status. If you're using heat, same thing with cold. That's the same thing. So a regular heat practice and a regular cold practice, again, ancestral tactics that we've just become mismatched from in yeah. a post-industrial era of air conditioning and heaters and being at a constant temperature all the time, break those rules, try every day to think, okay, did I get cold? Did I get hot? And, and those are also two really good ways to maintain the body's normal electrical charge. And then finally, we were in your kitchen, you had on your counter like a hyper mineral solution that you put into water called Quinton. That stuff's amazing. So is Redmond sea salt or Celtic salt or, or any salt that you can sprinkle into water, trace liquid mineral drops, anything rich in minerals. And in, in the in, in most agrarian societies now that are monocropping with rice and wheat and corn and not actually turning the soil over properly, they're growing produce in dirt. It's not mineral-rich soil. It's, it's not water-rich soil. And so much of our produce is not that rich in minerals. So whereas you could make an argument that in a good organic garden that you're treating with minerals and adding extra minerals too, which is a great way to grow produce, you're probably getting enough minerals, especially if you combine that with meat that has some natural minerals in it. Yeah. But if you're eating an average diet or you don't have access to really good produce growing really good mineral-rich soil, supplementation with minerals, even just like every glass of water you have, put a pinch of salt in there or use trace liquid minerals at the beginning or the end of the day, minerals carry a charge. That's how electricity is carried throughout the body. Right. So good, clean, pure water with minerals in it is another real key and a lot of the stuff plays on each other because we know that the sunlight will help to charge those minerals and kick off free electrons. And so you've got a lot of this stuff kind of working together. But long story short is in addition to nutrition and physical activity, you get sunlight, grounding and earthing, heat, cold water and minerals. And those would be the biggest things to myopically focus on if you're just going to say, okay, these are the biggest things, you know, shove all the other fancy supplements and peptides and hormones and anti-aging treatments and everything else out of the way. That's what you would want to focus on. The final thing I should mention, because we're talking about electricity is of course the dirty side of it, right? We talk about all the things that could clean up electricity, but 
you want to be careful like with, with, with Wi-Fi, with Bluetooth, with smart homes and smart appliances, because we know that these induce a positive charge inside the cell. There, there are some other issues with them as well. I mean, like at my house, uh, for example, we don't have Wi-Fi. Everything is metal shielded Cat7 Ethernet cable. Right, so if you want to use the internet, you plug into one of the cables that's in every room of the house. And people who have a Wi-Fi router and who haven't actually hardwired their home for ethernet, you can do something as simple as get like a digital wall timer, which is like 30 bucks off Amazon. Any outlet that you plug it into will automatically disable that outlet for the time period that you specify. So you could plug your Wi-Fi router into that and set it to turn off at 10 p.m. and turn on again at 6 a.m. So at least during your eight so, hours of yeah. sleep, when you want your body to be as de-inflamed as possible during that third of your life, when you want complete repair and restoration, you're at least not getting bombarded with a Wi-Fi signal. You wow. know, pair that with putting your phone in airplane mode and and just being cognizant of this because if you look at, at non-native EMF, right? Because EMF is everywhere. Like the ground, we just talked about the ground emits EMF, right? Yeah. But it's, it's these high frequency EMF signals that we have not at least yet in human evolution adapted to be able to, from a cellular standpoint, withstand some of the damage that something like a cell phone can do. We have to be cognizant of these things. There's a, a really good new book that does a great job, you know, in a much more thorough way than I could detail right now, highlighting all the research about this. It's got a great title. It's called EMF'd, EMF'd <laughs> by, uh, by Joe Mercola. And uh, it just shows how, re really there's, there's three main things. A, what happens when you get exposed to something like a 4G signal or a Wi-Fi signal? Hasn't yet been proven with 5G because there's so few studies that have actually been done on 5G, which is scary in and of itself Yeah. with the, with the 5G rollout. But what happens is you get a sharp influx of calcium into the cell. What's calcium? It's positively charged ion, right? And so that's one way that you're disrupting metabolic function and disrupting this whole human battery that we just talked about. Wow. Well, it turns out that one of the best ways to stop the influx of calcium into the cell is with magnesium. And that's kind of scary because most people on a typical westernized diet are very deficient in magnesium. Yeah. Really, everybody that I've had tested has been deficient in magnesium. So like taking a magnesium supplement before you go to bed at night, or if you're going to fly in an airplane, taking magnesium before and after you fly in the airplane to help to, to shut off that influx of calcium is a good idea. And there are two other things to be cognizant of when it comes to non-native EMF. One is we know that the ionizing radiation can cause damage to DNA. And the two ways that that DNA damage gets repaired is via sirtuins, which you'd find from like blueberries, dark chocolate, red wine, uh, supplements like resveratrol. Uh, and if you were to Google sirtuin rich foods, you can, you can find a whole host of these dark purplish, reddish, blue foods that you can work into your diet. Those will help to repair the DNA, but sirtuins do not work unless you have high levels of another compound called NAD. Mm -hmm. NAD is becoming a very popular supplement, actually, as an anti-aging compound. And you don't have to use it as a supplement, even though I would argue if you live a really kind of like industrial life and you're traveling on planes all the time like I do, like I supplement with NAD just because I know it protects my cells from the damage that a lot of this non-native EMF can cause. But two things that will increase NAD naturally are fasting, and a high intake of fermented foods like kimchi, sauerkraut, kefir, yogurt, etc. So you want all these blueberries and dark chocolates and red wine, and you want a lot of fermented foods with some elements of fasting worked in, and that will help to protect you from some of the DNA damage. 
And then finally, the last thing is that there is an inflammatory pathway in the body called NF-kappa B. And all, all that pathway does is it will increase or decrease inflammation, like a finely tuned machine. When you need to be inflamed or repair some things, it'll cause some inflammation. And when you want to decrease inflammation, that pathway will help to shut it down. And it gets completely deactivated, your, your sensitivity to it, from exposure to non-native EMF. So if, if you want to reactivate that MF-kappa B pathway, it turns out that having at least some element of nutritional ketosis occurring in your life is a good idea. Now that might sound like it's in stark contrast to what I was saying earlier about a ketogenic diet not being appropriate for everybody. There's a difference between a ketogenic diet and a state of nutritional ketosis. Meaning if you're like saving your carbs for the end of the day, engaged in low level physical activity, doing like an overnight 12 to 16 hour intermittent fast, you're, you're getting ketosis naturally, like the way our ancestors would have. I'm not saying you gotta go buy ketone esters and ketone salts and a stick of butter in your coffee and coconut oil and you know not eat a shred of carbohydrate the rest of your life. I think that's kind of an, a, a non-ancestral form of ketosis, but just being cognizant of carb intake, of fasting protocols, of low-level physical activity, of ways that we would naturally achieve ketosis, that's really good for battling some of some of the EMF. That being said, like I will pull out the big guns when I'm like, like when I flew to India, I had four different 10-hour flights. I actually drank a bottle of those you know, ketone esters before each flight because I know it was upregulating my NF-kappa B pathway. So it was fighting some of that inflammation from non-native EMF. So I would say the best things you can do to protect yourself would be nutritional ketosis or the use of some kind of like ketone salt or ketone ester, magnesium intake, and then paying attention to NAD and sirtuins, either from a dietary or a supplementation standpoint. So one of the things that I used to always do when I raced, and I still do as far as today, is amino acids and making sure that it's the right amino acids. And I know with your brand, Keon, you guys have a really good amino acid, and it's and it's, it's, it's shame, my, shameless plug, bro. But it yeah. is really good. And something yeah. that I took for years because it's not it's hard to find products that have the right balance, and I really right. believe that yours does. So I wanted I wanted you to explain the reasons behind sure. how that is structured and why it's structured that way. So. Uh, and the benefits when of it. it comes to amino acids, of, of course, we find amino acids in any source of protein, particularly in animal protein, we find a more complete amino acid source. But we also know that by combining forms of plant proteins like grains and legumes, you can also get, by the end of the day, a complete amino acid profile. Um, the, the difficulty for people who want to mainline amino acids into their bloodstream for the role that they've been proven to play in things like enhanced muscle recovery or the performance that's increased when your blood levels of amino acids are high during a workout is that the digestibility of like a steak, an egg, a, a bowl of quinoa and rice, you know, uh, you know, toast, whatever, like all that has to be digested, which can be difficult if you're going to try to eat a ribeye right before you, you go out for a workout or even just like yeah. make a big mess of scrambled eggs right after you finish working out or something. That's where mainlining amino acids into your bloodstream and bypassing the whole digestibility factor can be a, a, a good uh, performance or recovery strategy. It's a supplementation strategy. Uh, in bodybuilding and in the exercise sector, here's another dirty secret. One of the best ways to make money is to produce what's called a branch chain amino acid supplement. Extremely cheap to source, uh, tastes amazing. Like there's like these addictive flavored waters. Yeah. It's just basically leucine, isoleucine, and valine. 
No studies have shown that to actually increase things like post-workout protein synthesis. Leucine has been shown to induce a state of insulin insensitivity and affect that glycemic variability that we were talking about. And although you can sometimes feel cognitively, I think it's the flavor, like you get a little mm -hmm. pick-me-up, it's really not doing much for you. Um, essential amino acids are about nine different amino acids, and those are in a ratio that does not actually throw off your blood glucose, and they also give you all the building blocks that you need, not just three. Uh, I learned about them from an older, actually an Ironman triathlete named David Minkoff, who had raced like 41, 42 Ironmans, I think he was in his 60s, in remarkable health. And I think that that's important to note because we know that in human beings, digestive enzyme production decreases as you age. So harnessing all the amino acids that you want to get from food is more difficult as you age. So I think there, there's two things you should consider there. A, I think every person who's above 40, when they're having like steak, eggs, anything like that, should use a really good digestive enzyme that has protease in it, that helps to digest the proteins and free up more of the amino acids. And B, as a supplement, I don't think it's a, there are some supplements that I think are deficient in nearly everybody. Like I was talking about, magnesium is one, creatine is another, and many people, not everybody, vitamin D is another, mm -hmm. uh, omega-3 is from fish oil, that's mm -hmm. another. Like there's some supplements that nearly everybody benefits from taking. I don't think, Everybody needs to take essential amino acids if they're eating a protein-rich diet, especially if they're older, consuming digestive enzymes along with those proteins. But for athletes, I think that having high blood levels of amino acids during and also post-workout is actually, it's, it's a really good supplementation strategy and one that, that I use. Yeah, for sure. I think, it's, I think it's one of the best for sure. And again, it's not, it's not going to GNC or one of these shops and just going and getting a bunch of BCAAs or yeah, just getting a, a bottle that says yeah. amino acids on it. It really EAAs. has to be. Yeah. 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 Collagen isn't essential. bad too. Collagen is bad. It's a little less bioavailable. So if you're going to do collagen, you want about 40 grams a day. If you're going to do essential amino acids, you want about 20 grams a day. What are, what would be two things that you would want to teach your kids? Uh, I mean, you want to teach them a ton of stuff, but like, what would be two specific things that you'd want to leave behind things that you've learned or things that you've mm -hmm. experienced that you want to say, if, if this is all you get, if this yeah. is all you remember from me here, here are the two things that I would want to right. leave as far as behind. Well, related to what we've just been talking about, health span, lifespan, healthy eating, exercise, biohacking, you know, all this stuff. We know that there are gin chugging, cigarette smoking, 108 year old grandmas in Sardinia who are healthy despite their lifestyles, not because they're out, you know, biohacking all day long, you know, with laser lights and, and cold baths. Yet, when you look at their lives, they're socially robust, they have good relationships, they have love. Often they have woven in many spiritual disciplines like gratitude silence, solitude, meditation, prayer, church attendance, or belief in higher power. And, and this idea of caring for the spirit, caring for the soul, I think trumps just about any, any exercise, any diet, any supplement, any biohack, anything like that. And really a big part of that comes down to, you know, when you, when you look at a lot of these spiritual disciplines, it comes down to loving others, even gratitude. Like one of the big reasons gratitude is so powerful is it just increases your empathy so much for others. And um, so number one, 
I think if I could boil it down, would be to love others, to love others. That, that would be, and that is one of the things I tell my kids, no matter what your purpose statement in life is, no matter what you decide to do as a job, just realize that you have a unique skill set in life. You have a unique purpose in life. And the best thing you can do is to identify that than to go out and love other people, love others, right? It's even the golden rule, right? Love, or one of the golden rules, love, love your, your neighbor as yourself, right? So love other people would be one. Uh, the second would be, I think that at the, and this might be a little bit controversial for folks, but you asked, so I'll go there. Um, I think that at the end of the day, living life with the with a very um, with a very scientific approach, right? We want to strip everything down to a molecule, a, a photon, a quark, a proton. We want to figure every last element out and be able to explain away via science every last thing that exists on this planet. Um, and that that of course you know is often accompanied by the belief that we're just a bunch of you know chunks of flesh and blood floating through you know, the universe on a giant rock trying to see who can make the most money or live the longest or, you know, be, be with the hottest spouse or, or have the greatest car or, or whatever. When, when, you, when you strip everything down to this idea that we are all just basically, you know, mammals living on a rock and everything just comes down to, to protons and atoms and molecules and, that, and that's it. I think at the end of the day, let's say 300 years from now, we found the smallest molecule in existence, the smallest particle in existence. And we've, we've said, okay, th this is it. We've, we've found it all, the, the secret to life. We've unlocked every last thing on this planet and been able to scientifically explain it all. I think at the end of the day, that's kind of a hopeless way to live because it just means that we are alone and there's nothing more to life, right? Like that's, that's it. We figured everything out. We've, we've scienced everything away. And in my opinion, the idea that we are alone and there's no ultimate meaning to life, to me, that's the description of hell. That's pretty much not a world I want to live in. I think this idea that there's something greater outside of us, that the world can be somewhat magical. There are some things that we cannot explain. I, I believe there's a whole world of, of you know, spirits and angels and demons and gods and goddesses and, and just this amazing fourth dimension we even tapped into and that very few people even understand you know i think that that is a more fun and a more hopeful way to live this idea that we could go on forever in eternal bliss you know rather than just like you know life being it it's over it's all scientifically explainable i really think that's a very hopeful way to live so I would say not only to love others, but believe in magic, right? Understand that at the end of the day, maybe we can't explain everything. Maybe there are mysteries of the universe that are beyond us. And, you know, for me, that, that's God, that's Jesus. That's, that's this idea that, that you, can, you can pray and believe in a higher power and have that hope that there, there's things outside us that we can't quite understand. But if I could just put it in very simplistic terms to my children, it would be love others and believe in magic. That's really good. To go on to that, one last thing, what are you most grateful for right now in this moment? I'm grateful that I got home from India five days ago and I told my little boys, 11 years old, who were over there in the kitchen somewhere, I think, you guys, I miss you so much. Do you want to come to Hawaii with me? 
I'm so grateful they said yes. And that I'm just basically here in Hawaii with, with, you know, with, with what, what is arguably one of my biggest reasons for living, you know, my, my two boys. And so that's what I'm grateful for. So good. No, it's so good. This, this last little piece, just to hear, to really hear your heart and to, I want to say thank you for one, the work that you've done and the knowledge that you've taken of yourself and shared it to help those. Right. And it's all scientific and it's all detailed and it's all like so much. But then when you strip it all away to go, it's about loving others. It's about as far as believing in God, it's about family and it's about everything. So I want to thank you for the example that you're setting and, and just what you're sharing and to really encourage us to, wake up and make the most out of the day and be boundless, you know, um, at any age in whatever we're doing. So yeah, seriously, thank you very much. Well, thank you so much for joining us for this episode with Ben Greenfield. I hope you got a lot out of it because it was full of a lot of information and thank you very much for coming and for listening to the show and make sure that you write down at least three things that you got out of the show as far as today that you can start to apply in the next 24 hours and see some change and remember to share it with us make a comment in this podcast make sure you give us a review and thank you again for joining us 